Father, we come to you and we give thanks once again that we can gather and sit under your word, listen to stories of old and hear you speak to us through them. We ask that you would speak clearly and encourage us, encourage your needy people today as we look at these chapters in 1 Kings. Lord, ask that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word in your son's name. Amen. So before we get started, I wanted to at least begin to promote some of the references that I'm using to gain this, to teach from. And the first one, I've listed all three on the back of your notes. There's three that I'm using. I'll just promote the first one. This is the one, if I were to have you pick up one for personal reading, this would be the one. You just read the title of that. And you might understand why. Faith in the face of apostasy, the gospel according to Elijah and Elisha. So this book by Raymond Dillard is totally focused on the Elijah and Elisha stories, nothing else. It's full of them. This is the uh, table of contents. I know you can't read them all, but every single one's listed chapter by chapter. And the beauty of it is it actually will make links to the gospel throughout, which is a great way to read the Old Testament. When you read these stories, you want to see how they are communicating the gospel truth that eventually Jesus brings to us. And you can see these, if you would, these foreshadowings of the gospel in these stories. And that, this book will do that for you. And it's, it's, uh, it's a nice read. It's almost a devotional read, actually. You could read each one and just reflect upon uh, what what's going on in the different text. So I wanted to promote that one, and I'll get to the other two later on. The other two are good, too, but they're a little more technical, if you would, a little more deep. This is, this is more, like I said, devotional. And I'll get back to our trusty map. Last week we talked through... 1 Kings 17 and 18. 17, Elijah burst on the scene from a place called Tishba, which may not really exist. Um, Tishba is shown on this map right there above the brook Cherith. That's where they guess it is. But the word Tishba actually means sojourner, wanderer. And that may be what was really intended is Elijah is just a wanderer because he really is a sojourner in the land of promise. He's not at home anywhere. He's constantly moving around. We don't know where he came from, and he, he doesn't really settle down anywhere. And he appears on the scene, goes and talks to the king of Israel, who's a wicked king named Ahab, whose um, capital is in Samaria, which is the big bolded to the left there, the lower side there. That's the capital of Israel at this time. That's a city that his father, Ahab's father, Omri built. And it actually remains the capital throughout the rest of Israel's history. This is the northern kingdom. Because remember, before this, Israel under David and Solomon was even bigger. It, it, it included everything 
as they would say, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And this, those two things actually show up here. The northern kingdom was called Israel, right? It was called Israel, yes. And the lower was called Judah. And the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. So Israel is the northern kingdom, and at the very top is a little town called Dan. That's like the northern border. And you'll see this phrase repeated in the Old Testament that David reigned from Dan to Beersheba or Solomon reigned from Dan to Beersheba, meaning Dan in the north all the way to the south where the Judean kingdom is. And down here in this corner, Beersheba. So that's like the bottom of the kingdom, the, the top, the north to the south. In Judah, its capital is Jerusalem. And a descendant of David is on the throne. And the heirs of David's throne are, are tend to be much more godly and much more God-focused. In fact, the king at this time, and he's not mentioned in these narratives yet, but he will show up in chapter 21, the very end of this, 22, happens to be a man with a very, I love the name, it's funny. His name is Jehoshaphat. And that's a name, as a kids love names like that. He's Jehoshaphat. Um, but he's actually a godly king. He actually is restoring the people to worship at Jerusalem. No, that was his grandson, I think, Joash. He comes a little later. He's actually going to show up in the Elisha stories at the very end, Joash will. But Joshua will show up a little bit. But he's just... This, uh, the, the book of Kings is more concerned about what's going on in Israel. The book of Chronicles is more concerned about what's going on in Judah, if you wanted to know the difference. Chronicles focuses on Judah, and Kings focuses at first on Israel until Israel goes away into exile, and then it shows the demise of Judah as well. It, it kind of shows them both, but it really, really focuses on what's going on in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom went bad immediately. The very first king who broke away from Solomon's son was Jeroboam, and he was bad. He just did not, he led the people away from Jerusalem worship, and he created, he actually created calves, bull altars, and he put one up north in Dan, and he put one down in the southern edge of his kingdom, which was Bethel, at the border of the two. And he has these two calves, and he leads everybody to worship. Don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Go to these places and worf, do the golden calf thing all over again. Worship golden calves or calves. And that's what Jeroboam did. And it says that earlier in Kings, a prophet came to him and said, God's going to destroy you and your house because of what you did. And he does. And he replaces them with another king named Baasha. And Baasha does exactly the same thing. Tells everybody to worship at Dan and, Dan and Shiloh, not Shiloh, Bethel. And another prophet comes to him and says, God's going to destroy you and your house. And he does. And now here we are. This is the third monarchy, Omri and his son Ahab, who've come in, and they are bad as well. But as we saw in the end of chapter 16, Ahab and Ahab's actually worse. Because he, he introduces Baal worship. He says, now we're going to quit worshiping so much at the calves at Dan and, and Bethel. 
he builds a temple in Samaria and says, Baal, this is where we're going to be. And he's got an evil wife named Jezebel who actually goes about purging and killing all the prophets to force, force, this is the new religion of Israel, is Baal. And then God brings Elijah on the scene and says, not so quick. And if you listen to last week's narrative reviews, God does basically dispatches of Baal pretty quickly because Baal doesn't exist. It's pretty easy to do. I mean, you have a real God and a fake God, and that's where we have the big uh, on Mount Carmel. The big uh, Mount Carmel's up here kind of at the northern border. The big showdown where Elijah gets up there with the 400 prophets of Baal and Ahab, and they dance around all day trying to get their God to listen and burn up their sacrifice, and Elijah kind of mocks them. He doesn't kind of. He really does mock them. If you read it, it's kind of humorous if you read it, mocking a God that doesn't exist. And then he calls on the true God, who immediately burns up the bull that Elijah offered, and the people all repent at that moment and say, oh, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God. Fail no more. They, there's, a, there's a great repentance in that moment. And they all actually take the prophets of Baal and they slaughter them, or Elijah slaughters them, and he slaughters them at the river Kishon at the base of Mount Carmel right there to the right. And then Ahab is um, told to run back to Jezreel which is his, I would call it his uh, summer home, maybe. <laughs> it's kind of his recreational palace. He likes to spend more time in Jezreel here than down in Samaria. Actually, this is where Jezebel loves to live. So he runs, and actually takes his chariot here to Jezreel, and God starts to bring rain that has been missing for three years at Elijah's word, and that's where we left off, is the very last bit of chapter 17, or 18, I mean, last verse. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You said that uh, Judah is more focused, or Chronicles is more focused on Judah, and Kings is more focused on Israel? Yes. That's that's correct. The Book of Kings is more focused on God's work in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Actually, both kingdoms, but right now it's all Israel. Everything about this narrative is Israel. Judah's like not even in the picture. Even though Judah's doing pretty good down there with Jehoshaphat on the throne, he's, not, he's, he's leading them well. But Ahab, of course, is a problem, and God is dealing with the problem. I mean, you could think of Israel at this point, you could think of Israel as being just a like a post-Christian culture, if, to use the word. It's like they've they are no longer following the God of their history, of their roots. They're totally abandoning Him, and yet God is still active, very active, and He's actually just demonstrated through Elijah, His prophet, that their God Baal is no God, and He did so by. Stopping rain for three years, 
Baal was supposedly the god of rain, but he was impotent. He couldn't bring it. Only Yahweh could bring rain. Only Elijah's God could bring rain. So we leave Elijah after two amazing chapters, his run to the entrance of Jezreel. And you would expect at the beginning of chapter 19 um, something other than what happens. Because at this point, Elijah, I mean, he would be my vote for a member of the Avengers. <laughs> I mean, he's outrunning chariots, stopping rain, causing rain, calling lightning down from heaven to burn up sacrifices, raising people from the dead. Even, even Thor can't do that. He's really got it going. But in, in chapter 19, it takes a quick turn so fast. And you think, what, what happened to Elijah? I thought he was Superman. And here's what happens when he gets to Jezreel. Ahab goes in and tells Jezebel, verse 1 of chapter 19, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all those prophets, all 400 of them with the sword. And what's Jezebel's response? She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel says, So what? I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. Now, it's interesting, she actually pronounces a curse upon herself if you read that closely. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life, Elijah, as the life of one of them, the dead prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. She's saying, let the gods kill me if I don't kill you first. And she doesn't kill him first. She does not kill him. But, so she's actually cursing herself. And if you look at the word in Hebrew for gods that she invokes, it's the same word that is translated the Lord God, God, the God of Israel, Elohim. It's the same word. So she's like saying, so may God do to me and more also if I do not make your life. She's almost like daring God to take her out. And he doesn't at this time. She's speaking. To, she's not thinking of the same God, but she uses the word Elohim kind of in vain, if you will, like God. Do to me, daring him to do to me, because she doesn't, despite what's happened, she doesn't believe. It also, this also kind of reveals just how she is obviously an evil woman, but she doesn't really believe in Baal either. <laughs> she doesn't care that the prophets of Baal are dead. She's going to go ahead and continue killing the prophets of Yahweh, including this one, Elijah, who's been a rather formidable foe. So she says that, and in verse 3 is where the surprise comes into play. This is mighty Elijah's response. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. That's a long run. Now, I just told you where Beersheba was over a hundred. 
So he's up in Jezreel. He sees the threat and he starts running, hightailing it down through the kingdom of Israel, crossing the border into Judah. Keeps going all the way down to the little corner here, Beersheba, the very lower edge of Judah. So he's run away way, way beyond Jezebel's reach, really. Jezebel has no authority down there. And he's even past that. And he goes, it says, he leaves his servant there. He had, he had a, the servant is actually a young man or like a teen boy. He leaves him there and goes another day's journey into the wilderness, even below that, off the map, if you will. He's running away into the wilderness. And he finds in the middle of this desert a broom tree, says. And he sits down um, under the broom tree, which I wondered what that was. So I found a picture. Let's see if I can move this out of the way. Well, it's down there below. Find this. I think it's now it's going to be here, but I got to get the other one. I actually have a picture of a broom tree. I just thought it was kind of neat to look at. I can get rid of this one because I've already shown. Yeah, here's the broom tree. Nice shade under there you can find in the desert. It's a nice tree to find. So that's where he's camped out under, hiding. And um, he says, well, actually, he's collapsed after 100 miles of fleeing. Uh, what's it say there? In, uh, he, well, he leaves his servant, goes a day's journey in verse 4, sits down under a broom tree, and he asks that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And it's like, wow, this is the mighty Elijah, right? He's run away from a threat from a woman who's angry and says she wants to kill him. And he's run 100 miles to the desert. Away, left his servant. He's totally alone. And he's basically collapsing under here saying, let me die. I'm done. I'm finished. And I mean that he's despairing. The mighty Elijah is despairing. And um, we can stop and think about it and say, well, what happened? How, how did this happen? And well, one clue, if you remember the verse we talked about last week, James 5:17, at the end of James where Elijah's held up as a paragon of how to pray. Remember how that verse begins? It says, And Elijah, who has a nature like ours, prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and it rained. Elijah has a nature like ours. Elijah is really no different from us. He has a nature like ours, because... Frankly, we've probably all done something like this. We've all been scared. We've run for our lives, and we've despaired of our life, and we've said something like Elijah said here. 
I'm no better than my father's. Lord, just take me away. I'm done. I mean, we can relate to that. This makes Elijah, he's no longer Captain America. Now he's, he's one of us. He's like us. He really is a man with a nature like ours, and he does despair when things don't go his way. And that's pretty much what I think is going on here is things haven't gone his way. And a bigger thing, he hasn't heard a word from the Lord yet. If you remember, one of the cadences of chapter 17 and 18 is the Lord told him to go to the brook Cherith. And then the Lord commanded the ravens to feed him. And the Lord told him to go up to Sidon to a widow. And the Lord commanded the widow to take care of him. And the Lord commanded the oil not to run out. And the, and the Lord commanded the, uh, the grain not to run out so they could have oil and bread until it started raining and, and he's being led by the Lord. The Lord's saying, go, 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 go. And then it's like all of a sudden at the beginning of 19, Jezebel comes with her threat and Elijah doesn't hear a word. The word is, the Lord is silent and he panics. He's like, now what? <laughs> and he runs. And he, he didn't hear the word of the Lord and he just ran. The Lord didn't tell him to run, but what's different is he didn't hear the Lord. And I think part of why he's doing this is he's like so used to hearing the Lord tell him what to do. And where'd you go? I can't find you. And he just, get away. I'm scared now. Where's this Lord who's been talking to me? He's not talking. I'm not, either he's not talking or more likely Elijah's not listening. But there's a silence from the Lord. And he is, finds himself under this broom tree in the desert south of Beersheba, wanting to die. He's a man with a nature like us. And I wrote, um, I see the notes here. No directing word from the Lord. There's some allusions here to others. This is, yeah. The illusion thing. These stories have happened before. They allude to what's going to happen in the future. One of the big things about chapter 19 is Elijah is really strongly alluding to Moses throughout this entire chapter. We're going to see this. This is like Moses 2.0. He's living the Moses life over again. Because you remember... What happened to Moses? There was a time he fled for his life. And that's written down there. It's in Exodus 2.15 when he, mighty Moses, was going to come in and rescue the Israelites by killing an Egyptian. He was the son of, or living like a son of Pharaoh, right? And he was expecting the Israelites to go, thanks, Mo. You're our leader now. And instead they said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? He goes, oh, no. And then the Pharaoh finds out, and it says in Exodus 2.15 that he fled for his life. Where? To the desert. And he was hiding. So you have Elijah doing the same thing Moses was doing. So you see the illusion there. And then, of course, if you look into Jesus' life, you're going to see a lot of illusions. Jesus' life alludes to these two men, Moses and Elijah, Joseph fled into Egypt 
under threat of being killed as well. So there's that illusion of another flight away from this ruler, a pharaoh in Moses' case, Jezebel in Elijah's case, Herod in Jesus' case, threatening to kill, and they're all running away, running far, far away. So you see the pattern repeating itself. Here's Elijah being like the new Moses, running away, scared that Jezebel's going to kill him, Pharaoh's going to kill him if you're Moses. So you have that illusion going on. And then Elijah's despairing and saying, I want to die. There's uh, Moses wanted to die at times too. Of course, Moses' journey was a little longer than Elijah's. He was wandering in the desert for 40 years with obstinate people. I wrote one reference there where Moses, during one of Israel's many rebellions, basically saying the same thing Elijah says in Numbers 11.15. Just take my life. I'm done with this. And another illusion that I thought of that I wrote down there for you is Job. I mean, Job... The adventure of Job happened before this as well. The, Job was likely written before Kings, and he may have been thinking of Job, just as he was thinking of the Pentateuch for Moses. He was thinking of Job. What happened to Job? Job had his life fall apart, apparently. And there's a part of that narrative in Job 2, 9 through 10. I'm going to actually go to that one, where Job's wife despairs. Oops, that's not the one. And I'll just read a little context. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, Job's response is not the same. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? And all this God did not sin, or Job did not sin with his lips. So you have this just despairing of life. Curse God and die. And interestingly, just to stick with Job a little bit, you know, Job kind of dismissed his wife's despair in that moment he didn't like go away I need space nothing like that I'm going to divorce you nothing like that he just for he just put up with it if you will it's overlooked it forbearance because Job and what we should take from this Job knew that when you're when you're despairing your words what you say you don't really mean it and he makes a poignant statement later in one of his statements, Job 6.26, I'll read it. And I think this has bearing on what we're going, what's going on here. I'll read a little context here to Job 6.24, Job speaking, Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray, how forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove, speaking of one of the guys who was trying to reprove him. 
Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is a wind? When the speech of a despairing man is a wind, you would even cast lots over the followers, bargain over your friend. But this idea that a despairing man speaks wind, let it be wind. Just let it go. The wife is despairing. Elijah's despairing. He's saying nonsense. He's saying he doesn't really want to die. It's ironic that he's saying he wants to die. He's wanting the same thing for himself that Jezebel wants, which is ridiculous. He's just like despairing. And it's just words for the wind. Just let it pass. And God, that's what God does with this. Because God comes forward strong in this chapter and in the following chapters. You see, before, in chapter 17 and 18, you might have thought it was Elijah, but it was God all along who was coming strong. And now that his man is despairing, that doesn't, that doesn't stop God. That doesn't stop him one bit. Because his response, look how he responds to this despairing man's windy, worthless words that have no truth whatsoever. He lay down and slept under a broom tree, verse 5. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he, Elijah, looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And the actual Hebrew would say, the angel didn't bake the cake. The cake was already fresh baked. It was like, it's a noun. Fresh baked cake. angel just puts a fresh baked cake on hot stones and jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. So what does God do to his despairing servant when he says, I want to die? Ignores it. Gives him what he needs. Sleep, food, drink. He does it twice. So God comes through and takes care of his despairing servant, even though he said things he shouldn't have said, and he's not holding it against him, if you will. It's like, no, eat and drink. And he says it twice. I'm going to see a pattern in chapter 19 of everything said twice, starting now. Arise and eat. Angel comes twice. Arise and eat. He says it twice. The whole chapter is repeated twice, and that's for emphasis. This chapter, I would say, is the most important chapter in the book of Kings. And it has nothing to do with Elijah's response or Elijah's way he's handling things, because he's not handling things well. It's, it's, this is God coming strong in chapter 19. And it's emphasized, pay attention here, the angel of the Lord came twice you're going to see this throughout the chapter twice. Arise and eat. God brings mercy. God brings compassion to his despairing servant who is fleeing. Apparently not. The Lord didn't tell him to flee. He's saying things like, let me die. The Lord's just taking care of his servant. He says, no. Nope. Rise and eat.
That also might, you might remember that he, Elijah said that to Ahab at the end of chapter 18. Remember that? At the end of the showdown? Eat. Get back. You have a long journey. Go. And that's what the angel's doing to him right now. The angel of the Lord is telling him, you have a long journey. You need strength. So Elijah, by himself, he arises in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Horab, the Mount of God. So he goes from there for forty days and forty nights to Horab, the Mount of God, which is even it's off the map. Does Horab ring a bell? By the way, does anybody know what Horab is? They heard that one before. It's not even on the map. I can't even go that far south. It's way off. It's in the Sinai Peninsula. Horab is another name for Mount Sinai. And Elijah is going 40 days and 40 nights without food to Mount Sinai, Mount Horab. Who else did that? Go ahead. This is off the subject, but I touched the little letter that was with Mount Oreb, mm-hmm. and that's where the burning bush was, mm-hmm. Mount Oreb. Yes, the burning bush was there too, in the wilderness of Horeb. So that that's a good, that's actually one I, that's a good, that's a good one to add to your notes. Another illusion that Moses fleeing from Egypt goes to Horeb and meets God. Elijah fleeing from Jezebel goes to Horab and meets God. That's in Exodus 5, I believe. But also the 40 days and 40 nights shows up a few times in Moses' life. And Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Elijah's 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Moses... How long was he on Mount Sinai? 40 days and 40 nights. But he did it twice. Both times. Both times, 40 days. So Elijah went up there. Not Elijah. Moses went up 40 days and 40 nights to meet God the first time. And I actually have that reference there in the notes. Um, 3A. And I'm... My cursor is, I don't know where. That's the problem. Oh, there it is. <laughs> 40 days, 40 nights, and then, uh, yeah, 3A. Deuteronomy 9, uh, reason I, I listed it twice in Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy is a summary of what happened in Exodus. So in, in one chapter, you can read about the two trips. In verse 9, he goes up once, and for 40 days and 40 nights, eats no food. And that's when he receives the law, Moses does. And God says, ooh, I hear, I hear idolatry in the camp. And Moses goes down. They're worshiping a golden calf already. He breaks the tablets. And there's a big judgment on the people who are disobeying. And then Moses goes up again and intercedes for 40 days and 40 nights without food. So Moses 
went up twice, the first time to receive the law, the second time basically to intercede and to stand in the gap that God wouldn't wipe out these disobedient people. So Moses goes up twice. Elijah is now going to the same place with 40 days and 40 nights. And, of course, Jesus will also spend 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And those references are there for you in the notes. And then he's at Horab. He's at the mountain. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Finally, the word of the Lord. Finally, it's back. I mean, the angel of the Lord was the word of the Lord too. But now it's like this is the Lord, the Lord speaking. And remember, Moses heard the Lord on Mount Horab quite a bit. That's where we get the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers from, or those first two especially. The law was given to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the word of the Lord. That's all he says. What are you doing here, Elijah? Or you could translate it, why are you here, Elijah? Implying, who told you to come? Did I say come up here? What are you doing here? And then, God, uh, Elijah has his response. He has his speech. He tells God, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah makes his case before the Lord. I'm here because your people have been misbehaving, forsaking the covenant, killing the prophets, throwing down the altars, and I'm the only one left, and they want to kill me. I just want you to know that. I'm it. They're, 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 look at them. Look what they're doing. I'm it. Do something. That's what he's saying. God, do something about this. You were with me on Carmel, right? You wiped them out. They're still misbehaving. Are you, you going to put up with this? That's, that's kind of what he's implying in his speech before God. He says, what are you doing here? So here's how God responds. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Go out of the cave and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by. Does that remind you of something that happened in Moses' life? Moses in the cleft of the rock. Elijah in the cave on the same mountain. And the Lord passed by him. And if you remember, when the Lord passed by Moses, he said some things. He doesn't say them here, but he revealed himself to be God of compassion and mercy, right? So, here's 
when Moses is up there, he's, he's interceding. He wants God to save the people. And the Lord passes by and shows, I'm, I am compassionate. Here's Elijah doing the opposite. Kill him. Judge him. Get, fix him. Do something. And what does the gracious Lord do? He passes by. Revealing to Elijah his graciousness and mercy. Even after he makes this big speech of, it's uh, like, come out and watch. This is who I am. So this is an allusion to what God did to Moses. He passes in front of him, graciously revealing who he is. And it's not a God primarily of judgment. Judgment as we heard preached on the pulpit last week, God has mercy and compassion in his right hand. Judgment is left, and he's right-handed. He's right-handed. He uses this. Mercy, compassion, mercy, compassion. The judgment, he restrains until he absolutely has to use it. And here's Elijah begging him to do this left-hand thing, and God's saying, mercy. I'm showing you mercy. I'm showing you mercy. And then he gives them a nice demonstration of what he means. He passes by, and suddenly the winds pick up. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broken pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? For the second time. But you know, before that second time, what happened? God just showed him, look, I just caused this big wind, this big thunderstorm. And you didn't hear my voice in that. I wasn't in that. I mean, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for me to take that, that thunderstorm and wipe these people out. And then I brought an earthquake, shaking up the ground and making you wobble around. You were expecting me to bring that. I'm not in that. That's not me. I don't speak that way. And then I brought fire, and I'm not in that either. I'm not here to burn everybody up. I'm not here to shake everything up. I'm not here to blow everything around. I'm gentle and quiet. I'm humble. I'm drawing people to me quietly. I'm patient. I'm kind. Still small voice. You see the see what he's doing there? God is not who Elijah wants him to be at this point. God is quiet, gentle, merciful. He's been merciful to Elijah up to this point, and he will continue to be. And he doesn't want to wipe out Israel. Not just yet. He's still being kind to them, not wishing for any to perish, but that they would all come to repentance. That's the heart of God being revealed. 
on this mountain. And then I wrote other allusions. Remember back when Moses was up, when he came up, and there's in Exodus 19, the people heard winds and thunder and fire and loud trumpet sounds, which some people, when they experience earthquakes, think they're hearing a, a trumpet-type sound. It's, it's There's noise, a lot of noise. So that happened before at this mountain, and now God's bringing it again for for Elijah. So there's that illusion. But he's the still quiet voice is is what it's all about. That's who God is first and foremost. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's kind first and foremost. That's his right hand. He's right-handed, and that's what he's going to do. He wants to do that, first and foremost. And that's what this chapter is communicating in picture form more than even it's a story, but it's like a picture. It's like he's not in these, he's not in the big judgment things. He's, he's just a, a, a quiet voice. And if you really want to hear me, Elijah, calm down and listen. I'm going to whisper to you. I'm just going to whisper. Just trust me. I got this. And he says once again, this time in a whispered voice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same speech again. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, People of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So even after all this, Elijah's still like, Do something, please. Do something. And then it's like God says, Okay, you want me to do something? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Verse 15. Go. Return. Go return. He's going to say that. Actually, Elijah's going to say that a little later. Go return. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. You know where Damascus is? Damascus is not in Israel either, by the way. Um, way up north. Way up here in Syria. That's not even Israel. Aram. Go up to Damascus. That's even it's up at the Zarephath level. Mr. Sojourner, go up here. Yeah, you're way down here in the Sinai Peninsula. Now go way up into modern day Syria. Known as Aram back then. And I want you to anoint somebody as a king over Syria. Anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And I want you to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. 
And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. You want judgment? There you got it. I'm going to judge through these three men. Go anoint them. Get up there and anoint Hazael. Anoint Jehu. Have fun finding these guys. But uh, Elisha, Elisha, he gives a town for him. You can find Elisha. Find these guys. And about, oh, by the way, Elisha, he's going to take your place. He's going to be the next prophet. Um, wow. So Elijah gets the promise from God that judgment's coming. He's finally getting his prayer answered. Of course, he doesn't know when it's going to happen, but he says, I'm bringing it. I'm going to bring it with these three men. Judgment is going to come. But, verse 18, verse 18 This is, whenever you see like a but or a yet, it's like the most important thing always comes after a but or a yet. You know, like when somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, you're really good at this, you're really good at that, you're really good at this, but need to pick up the trash. That's really why you came to them was to pick up the trash, right? It's like you didn't pick up the trash. Everything else, you're great, but the trash. But, the but, after the but is, that's the most important thing. That's what God really wants to say. He's like, you've got, you want the judgment? Okay, anoint this guy, this guy, this guy. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Or I will spare 7,000 in Israel from the sword, is what the implication is. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Period. God's done speaking. That's what God's really about. And that's why he hasn't brought the judgment yet. I've got 7,000. I've got to save 7,000, Elijah. You're not the only one. I have 7,000 to save. Yeah, judgment's coming. But right now, I'm more concerned about the 7,000. And the word 7,000 is probably more symbolic than literal. You shouldn't take it literally. I mean, the word 1,000 in the Bible, seven times 1,000, 7,000. 1,000 just means a big, innumerable number of people or things. And seven typically means complete, total. So if you take the two together, it's like I have a whole bunch of people and I'm going to save every one of them perfectly and completely. 7,000. I've got 7,000 that are mine. And I'm not judging until the 7,000 are rescued. The 7,000 are identified. The 7,000 are in our camp. Elijah. And that is one of the most important verses in the book of Kings. When God says that, he means that. And that verse will explain why he does what he does because these three men will execute the justice of God upon Ahab's house eventually. But that doesn't happen until chapter 9 of Second Kings, which is like 12 chapters away.
Between now and then, God is about rescuing the 7,000. That's what he's about. And eventually he's going to bring judgment through Hazael, through Jehu, and even through Elisha on the rest of them. But God is more concerned with the mercy of saving the 7,000. That's what he's about. And that's what he's just told, not just Elijah, but all of us who read the book of Kings. God is in the mercy. Yes, judgment will come, but God has 7,000 to rescue. Okay, now, see if I missed anything else I wanted to talk about. Illusions, just to compare. When you see similarities between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, part of the what you do when you see these similarities is you're supposed to compare. And I've been doing that. We compared to Moses. What was he? How was he different from Moses? Well, Moses was interceding for the people. Elisha is begging for judgment. And he, he, the Lord said, "You're going to get it, but not yet." Because I'm about saving the people, despite what you want to do, Elijah. But Moses was interceding for the people. Um, Moses went up twice. The first time he received the law, the people sinned. The second time was up for redemption of the people. And to establish, the covenant is established the first time. The second time is to save and redeem those and to have mercy upon the sinners who just built the golden calf. Moses comes up, or Elijah comes up now, and his first time to say, hey, they've sinned, time for judgment. But God says, no, I've got 7,000, basically, by the still small voice. I'm not in the wind, I'm not in the earthquake, I'm in the still small voice. And then there's a second, the second appeal of Elijah is, yeah, the judgment's coming. The judgment's coming. So there's, I'm just kind of showing you there's like a picture of the whole redemptive process there. God establishes the law. He establishes the covenant. People fall in sin. There's a redemption process. God's interested in redeeming, redeeming, and finally judgment's going to come. And the, the two visits by Moses and the two appeals by Elijah and of course, that's not in the end of it. There's also the allusion to someone else who went up on a mountain, and Elijah and Elisha, uh, Elijah and Moses, not Elijah, appeared to him. The Mount of Transfiguration. And if you look at what happens there, I'm going to go to that one, and that actually shows up in three of the Gospels. But I'm going to go to the Luke account. Because the Luke account has a little more detail. Someone else went to the mountain. And this time both Elijah and Elisha were there again. And this guy is greater than the other three. (laughs) This guy is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Luke 9:28 Luke 9:28 about now about 8 days after these sayings 
Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah of all people. The two people who have been on the Mount of God before and who actually talked to God face to face or at least saw him pass by like no other men in history. They're the only two that got to see God pass by them on the Mount of God as they hide in the cleft of the rock or in the cave. Both of them, they appear in glory and spoke of his departure. So Jesus is telling them pretty much, here's the next plan. I'm here. This is how it's all going to, he's giving them, we, we assume from these words, we don't know for sure, but that they're talking about, okay, I'm the answer to your prayers that you all had when you came up on the mountain, the intercessions, and you wanted the judgment, and yeah, I'm going to bring judgment. It's all coming together, guys. I'm the one. I'm the fulfillment of that. That's, that's what I, you can assume is going on between them. Just in those little words there, they, they're talking about his departure. And Peter sees it, and he's like, wow. Let's build some tents for these guys. And then Moses and Elijah go away, and uh, God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Don't listen to those guys. Listen to him. He's the one. So the Mount of Transfiguration is alluding to those Sinai experiences, those Horeb experiences of of Moses and Elijah and fulfilling them, if you will. They're like the ultimate fulfillment of what they were pointing towards. All right, so now Elijah says in chapter 19, verse 19, he leaves. He departs from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him and was with the 12th, meaning he was at the end of the line of the 12 yoke. Each yoke apparently has two oxen, so there's really 24 oxen, but there's a symbology of 12 again, 12 yoke, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of the Lamb, 12 comes throughout. Elijah passed by him. <laughs> Elijah passed by him. So he's he's kind of like being God doing the pass by. That, that same word comes up. It's just fascinating. It's, it's, it's a literary way of saying Elijah is passing by Elisha and he throws his cloak upon him. And Elijah, Elisha's response is, wow, he left his oxen, ran after him and says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. And Elijah says, go back. Actually, what he says is the same thing that God told him on the mountain. Go return. Go return. The same words. Go return. Just like he had passed by him, now he's saying, go return. For what have I done to you? <laughs> That's not nearly as eloquent as what God set up on the mountain. Um and he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them. This is Elisha. Sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him, or ministered to him from that point on, basically. So there's a lot in here where you can see Elijah's kind of doing to Elisha what God did to him. He passes by him. 
puts his cloak upon him. If you remember on the mountain, Elijah hid himself behind his cloak, so it was like God threw the cloak upon him, and now he's like throwing the cloak upon Elisha, cover him up. So there's a lot of symbology here. You're seeing a, a repeat of what just happened, and then he's telling him, go, return. You've got a job to do, but the job is say goodbye to your mom and dad and follow me, basically. And he does it enthusiastically. But there's some things you need to catch on here in the text. It's like, wait a moment, wait a moment. Didn't God tell him to go somewhere else? Right? He said, go to Damascus and anoint Hazael. And he, he doesn't do it. He goes to find Elisha. He doesn't bother to even go. It's like he doesn't want to. He's kind of pulling a Jonah here. <laughs> really? God says, go do something, and he says, I'm not going to go to Damascus. I don't want to go to Damascus. I want to, I want to go to Israel, friendly territory. I'm going to find a fellow Israelite named Elisha. He even said, I know where he lives. He lives in a place called uh, Abel Mola or something like that. And that actually shows on the map, so I, I can... I found it on the map. They put it on the map. Um, they put it right here. That There's some certainty to that one. Notice it's very close to where they think Tishba might be in the Brook of Cherith. Is. So Elijah was on this side of the Jordan, which I was informed last week is the east side of the Jordan. <laughs> and Elisha is on the west side of the Jordan. He finds him. And, um, but he didn't, he didn't go do the find the other two guys. So there's this idea, There's this. he's being disobedient. Elijah's, he's copping an attitude still. I mean, it's even evident in the way he tells Elisha, he throws the mantle. Now, God said, anoint these men. Anoint means, like Samuel did to David, oil. He doesn't, he just throws a mantle. <laughs> It's like, is that really an anointing? I guess it's symbolic of anointing, perhaps. It's just kind of interesting that he throws a mantle, and then when he tells him, go return, he says, what have I done to you? It's, it's like, I'm just trying to think of what Elijah might, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Well, he just got a job description and a command from God on Mount Horeb slash Sinai to go anoint men to bring judgment. And he's, he's hesitant all of a sudden. He's like, I don't really want to do that. I, I don't want to go have somebody kill off all these disobedient Israelites. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to bring judgment to Israel yet. That was actually Jonah's message, remember? His, his message was, go tell them that unless they repent, judgment's falling. And he says, I don't, want to, I don't want to go. I don't want to tell him that. And here's Elijah. I don't want to, I don't want, I, don't, I wanted judgment. I thought I wanted judgment, but I don't think I really want judgment anymore. That's, that's, that's kind of mean. <laughs> so instead of going to get the two guys to be kings with swords to start slashing everybody, he goes to Elisha, who he can find because he's close by. 
And and then he's like, what have I done to you? Like, I just gave, you're being anointed to go bring the judgment of God. And I'm like, I'm hesitant. It's like, I don't want, it's like, what? what? I'm, it's like he's saying, I'm sorry, Elisha. I'm sorry you have to take my job. It's not going to be a fun job. You're going to be the prophet and they're all going to want to kill you like Jezebel does. And you're going to go around and kill people with swords according to what God said. The swords that Jehu and Hazael failed to... They, they, they don't. You're cleaning up after them. Doesn't sound like a fun job description. What have I done to you? So Elisha's got this kind of like uh, hesitancy in what he's doing. He's not eagerly following the command of the Lord. And that also plays well because that, that also alludes, should, should raise a little red flag in, your, in our storytelling memories. Because there's another time where somebody said to someone, may I go s- say goodbye to my parents? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And who was that who said that? It was Jesus, yeah. And I actually have that reference down here. It's in Luke, uh, yeah, Luke 9.61. Let's compare it. Let's look at it. Luke 9.61. It actually begins in 57. And they were going along the road. This is Luke, Jesus. Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave. The dead can bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And here's, here's the one that sounds just like what Elisha said to Elijah. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. That's exactly what Elisha said. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now we see Elisha was plowing. He says, Can I go say goodbye to mom and dad? And Elijah says, Yeah, what have I done to you? Go. And then Jesus says, Anyone who does that is not fit for the kingdom of God. So it's like it's an opposite response. But what does that tell us? What does it tell us? Why did Elijah say, go return for what I have done to you, to Elisha? And yet Jesus says the opposite. What, what, what's the difference? What's the difference here? Yes, there's a difference in Elijah's and Jesus' urgency for sure. But also, what's the mission that Elijah has for Elisha? Judgment. What's the mission that Jesus has for those who follow him? Mercy. Mercy in the gospel. Jesus' mission is to bring the kingdom of God of mercy. And that's urgent. That's God's urgency. God wants that to be paramount. Don't, don't, don't. Go back. Keep plowing forward. Elijah's like, your job is judgment. Yeah, 
Go say goodbye to mom and dad. I'm in no hurry. Totally different ministries. Totally different urgencies because God and his now his prophet even has come around are not really eager to judge. But Jesus, God himself, is very eager to share the gospel, show mercy, show compassion. So I think that's how you can, that's how you deal with illusions. When you see, sounds the same, but totally different responses. Well, one is because the guy was supposed to go judge, and the other is we're supposed to go share the gospel. This is way more important. God wants to do this way more than he wants to judge. There's hesitancy in judging. God doesn't want to judge. His prophet Elijah no longer wants to judge after being on the mountain and realizing this isn't all it's cracked up to be. I really don't want to see all my brethren wiped out by the sword of Hazael and Jehu. So I'm not going to do it. And he doesn't. And there's no evidence that God comes down and corrects him for doing that either. The text doesn't speak of it again. In fact, Elijah actually recedes into the background. And you don't hear from him again until chapter 21. And um, I'm going to go through 20 really quick and 21. Because what 20 and 21 are is God saving us 5,000. He's saving us 5,000. I'm just going to go through my notes on this one. Let me see. All right. God fights for the 7,000. Start of 20 mentions a guy who's the king of Syria, who's not supposed to be the king of Syria for very long because Hosea was supposed to become the king of Syria. But Elijah's postponed. That's being postponed. So Benadad is the king of Syria, and he is threatening Israel. He's threatening God's people, even if Israel is kind of a godless nation. He's threatening them. And without Elijah's intervention at all, no mention of the man, God fights for Israel. And if you read through chapter 20, you'll see that Syria, or Aram, Benadad, is defeated twice against all odds. He's got big army. Israel has a small army. Elijah's not around, but several other prophets are, unnamed prophets, which tells you that when Elijah said, I'm the only one, he wasn't. God's raising up other prophets. So people, other prophets, go to Ahab and say, fight, fight. And they actually are, they're basically leading the nation. These other prophets are telling the king of Ahab, the evil king Ahab, what to do. And Ahab follows her directions, goes out. He actually gathers, it says in chapter 20, verse 15, 7,000 people of Israel. And that's literarily significant. 7,000. He gathers 7,000. The 7,000. There it is again, right? He gathers the 7,000. And if you read the numbers of the Syrians, there's like 100,000. So this is way overmatched. But God fights strongly for them, and he does it twice. Once again, you have the twice thing going on. Two battles, two different unknown prophets. They defeat Syria, 
and uh, the first the first battle happened in the mountains, and the second battle the, the king of Syria says, "Well, the reason we lost is because their god is a god of the mountains, so we're going to fight them in the plains." And of course, it's like, hey, yeah, that that works. <laughs> God's like the, the prophet actually says, "Because you said you, you were a god of the mountains and not the plains." Bring it on. We'll show you who's God of everything. So the second one is in the plain, and and it takes it actually takes seven days to defeat them, by the way. And there's actually, at the end, if you, as you read through it, at the end of the seven days, a wall of a city falls and kills a bunch of them, which sounds like something that's happened before. Jericho, seven days around Jericho, and then God the falls. It's like another Jericho event happens here. So God is coming strong in 1 Kings 20. And he's totally wiping out Benadad. And Benadad's captured now, the, the evil king of Syria. And then this is where Ahab, at the latter part of 20, this is where Ahab starts to make his, his mistakes because Benadad is, is devoted to destruction. He's supposed to be killed. But Benadad actually mercifully comes to Ahab, and Ahab says, hey, my brother, and makes a covenant with him and lets him go. He lets his enemy, the enemy who tried to kill God's people, go. And another unnamed prophet comes, and, and, and you'll see all kinds of allusions to a, a prophet coming to, he, he comes to rebuke Ahab for letting the evil king go. You had him, and yet you let him go. And this alludes to two things, actually. One, remember King Saul was told to go wipe out the Amalekites? Mm-hmm. He, he does wipe out the Amalekites, but he saves the king mm-hmm. and he lets him go. And then Samuel comes and says, that's it for you. You're no longer king. I'm going to anoint David. He's going to take your place. So Saul, Ahab's acting like Saul here. He's not following. He's not following the... Word of the Lord to wipe out Benadad and all of this, all the Aramans. He lets Ar- the Aramans go, and the prophet comes to rebuke him, just like Samuel did to Saul. So you have that illusion going on, and then there's also the the prophet tells a story, a story to him, and the way he does it, he says, "Hey," he he disguises himself. He says. Hey, I was supposed to watch this one era man, but I let him go. What should happen to me? And, and Ahab goes, you should die. You're a traitor. And then it's like he takes off. You recognize me? I'm a prophet. Well, guess what? You did the same thing. That sounds like Nathan and David, right? The Nathan David story. David kills Uriah, steals Bathsheba, and then the prophet comes and says, hey, that's you. You're the man. That story happens in chapter 20. I'm just rushing through this because <laughs> I want to get through it and I don't want to spend more time on it next week. That's chapter 20. Chapter 21, so Ahab is actually at the end of 20. Ahab, he's pronounced judgment upon himself. Let me, let me uh, look at that. 20, 38, 42. So Ahab has basically judged himself kind of like a Nathan-David thing where Nathan got David to admit that he did wrong and he deserved to die. Ahab 
basically admits, I did wrong, you did wrong, but really I did wrong and I deserve to die. And um, down in 20, yeah, 2040, and as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it, talking to the prophet who's disguised. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel said, oh, you're one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So he just pronounced judgment on himself, saying, you're going you're gonna to die because you let your enemy away. God said, kill him. You did not. And then comes chapter 21. Mr. Sulling, sulking Ahab goes to their palace in Jezreel, getaway, his getaway palace, where Jezebel lives, and he sees a vineyard that he wants for himself in Nahab's vineyard. And he goes to Nahab and says, give it to me. I'll give you a lot of money for it. You can replant your vineyard somewhere else. And Nahab says, no. No. And there's a, there's a reason for that. And that's because the land that God gave his people was to stay with the family forever. You don't sell it. And if you do sell it, God has a provision that in the year of Jubilee you sell it back. It stays in the family forever. The inheritance is eternal in, in a sense. The land is eternal. So this is Naboth's vineyard that belongs to his family. So when he says, he actually says it, I can't do that. Let me see, 21, 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab just goes back vexed and sullen again, all, didn't get my way. But then Jezebel steps forward and really does her most evil thing of all, um, she arranges a mock trial for Naboth. False witnesses say lies about him, and they stone him to death. And then she tells Ahab, go take your vineyard. All right? So that story should remind us also of the David Bathsheba story. Right? David wants Bathsheba. Ahab wants the vineyard. He can't get it. So you go kill Naboth and take it. David wants Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant and he has all those issues. How does he make it all right? He goes and kills Uriah to get Bathsheba. So there's a stealing of something doesn't belong. Now it also should allude forward to what happened to Jesus. Right? Remember he had a mock trial set up for him? He had false witnesses come to him. He was trumped up charges and they killed him. Same thing happened to Jesus. It happened to Naboth by this evil Jezebel. So that's all those are all illusions that are happening 
when you read the story of chapter 21. And then at the end of this, actually before, actually before Ahab even takes the vineyard, Elijah returns. And he pronounces pretty serious judgment upon Ahab for doing this. And that is what, let's see, 21.17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, the wanderer. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Actually, that would be, Samaria is like the region of Israel. He's actually in Jezreel is where the vineyard is. He's going to take possession. You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, where they stoned him in his vineyard, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And remember before Ahab, it's called Elijah the troubler of Israel. He's kind of saying something similar. You troubler of Israel, you enemy. He answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you and I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, who I mentioned earlier was destroyed similarly, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, who I also mentioned earlier, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Wow. And Elijah brings the judgment. And interestingly, this is we only see Elijah twice after the mountain. And both times he's pronouncing judgment. He's now a judgment prophet, as God told him to be, basically. He comes to Ahab and pronounces final judgment upon him. He's going to do the same in two chapters to his son. Ahab's son, after he dies, is going to also get a similar pronouncement of judgment from Elijah. And then there's a little bit at the end of Ahab repenting, humbling himself, And God telling Elijah, I'll delay the disaster. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'll delay it. It won't happen in his lifetime. He's not going to see it happen. He's not going to see his wife and kids destroyed. That's what, so God, even at the end here, God brings mercy after Elijah has said it's coming. Ahab humbles himself. And mercy triumphs over judgment even at the end there for Ahab. He gets a little more time. And uh, basically I have to bring it to an end there. So Because Ahab actually doesn't, he does die, but that's the next chapter. Chapter 22. So I guess the big takeaway once again Important thing was chapter 19, what God said on the mountain. I have 7,000. I have spared 7,000. My heart's with the 7,000. I will go on and spare the 7,000 even without 
the prophet Elijah, who's now just bringing judgment, actually have other prophets. He uses other prophets to bring the word of the Lord. Elijah's no longer the only one. But just that should remind us that when we had we had one who was on a mountain by himself, the only one, he didn't he didn't leave and go minister judgment. He actually allowed judgment to happen to himself. Right? The Lord Jesus, like Elijah, was all by himself on the mountain. And he received the judgment of God that the 7,000 might be saved from the judgment of God. Our Savior is much better than Elijah. Elijah foreshadows him, but he's certainly not him. So at the top of page three, you were talking about how Elijah partially obeys after he hears God. And yet, at the end of his life, the story with the chariots Mm -hmm. of fire, that's very melodramatic in my mind. (laughs) It is, yes. Um, So with... Why then would God honor him in that way um, with that melodramatic departure? Um, and then you have, you know, Elisha saying, Where now is the mm-hmm. spirit of Elijah and hitting the ground and all that, or tapping the ground or whatever? Um, why would the partial obedience, would, would God then honor him that way, or, or is it just. Just again, God's mercy. God's mercy is the only thing I can come up with. So, and we'll we'll actually cover that next week. That'll be next week's highlight. Elijah on the mountain with God this week, or God on the mountain with Elijah. Next week will be that transition to Elisha. Elijah's taken. Elisha receives the the mantle and the double portion. And we'll we'll think about things like that next week. Maybe we'll come up with some ideas. But God shows mercy. I mean, he shows mercy. Jonah disobeyed, yet his book's in the Bible is an example for us. Elijah disobeys, but God he's still God's man. So David disobeyed in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah. He's God's man. God forgives. Maybe that's the answer. The merciful one who dies and judge takes the judgment of Elijah. He's redeemed as well. Yeah. Peter denied him. Peter denied him, yes. And God forgives. And God, go, return, go do your job, Peter. I have ten my sheep. Okay, I'll pray real quick and we'll call it an end here. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Even if it's a still small voice or a quiet whisper, Lord God, we know you're present. We know you're working behind the scenes. You're fighting for your 7,000. You're postponing judgment. You're showing mercy. Even when your own prophets and leaders are hesitant to show it, you are still merciful and you are still ever present. 
We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.